Praise God. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. It is a, it is always a pleasure and a delight to be here this morning, gathered together physically. I'm super thankful for it. I'm thankful that we have a way to do it safely. Um, and I'm thankful for those that can't meet with us safely, um, that they have an option with all the difficulties to meet online. And I am very much looking forward to the day that we can do this without masks and we can hopefully touch each other again, hug each other, <laughs> and be together. If you don't know me, as you said, my name is Josh. I'm one of the committed members here at King's Cross. Uh, my wife, she's up there beautiful wife Jennifer and I have my beautiful daughter Reverie who you will no doubt hear from at some point today if not multiple times. <laughs> so today we're going to be continuing our series through the book of Acts. Today's passage as we continue on is Acts 11 verse 1 through 18 but before we begin I would ask um, once again that you join me in prayer. Heavenly Father we thank you for this time that we have today, we thank you for your word that we have access to. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to sing your praise and to worship you as you justly and rightly deserve. And Father, I pray uh, that you would have mercy on us today as we hear from your word. Holy Spirit, I humbly pray that you would do a work in me as I know you have done during preparation to bring your word faithfully to this church. And I pray that you would keep us all from distractions, either external or internal, for both us here and those online. And I pray that your word uh, would cut through the heart of man and that we would be receptive to your teaching, to your proof and your correction, your encouragement and the wisdom that can only come from you. And once again, I thank you for the opportunity to gather together around the teaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Again, our passage today is Acts 11, verse 1 through 18. And in our normal church rhythms on Sundays, we would read through this together at the beginning. But today we're going to do it a little bit differently. We're going to be working through the text in parts together. So but before I begin, I, I'd like to start with an acknowledgement. Or, and honestly, it's a confession that this passage, Acts 11, verse 1 through 18, is one of those passages that I would normally read and I would lose my focus and glaze over it to get to the next part. It's one of those passages that to me at first glance seems pretty redundant. After the sermon that Jijo gave last week on Acts 10, which is an incredible blessing, and because again, at first glance, this seems to repeat so much of the same information from Acts 10, I honestly was kind of tempted to just print his sermon word for word and just read it again to save myself the work. It just seems, it just seems boring at first glance. And I know that's not a good thing to say. And I do this way more often than I would like. I sometimes skip the genealogy passages or the priestly laws in the Old Testament or, or, or some of the books of prophecy because I find it boring. I want something that's gonna capture my attention, that's gonna convict me, that, that's gonna change me and mold me. I wanna read these incredible stories from history. I wanna see Jesus. I wanna see the historical narrative and, and the life of the church. And if I'm being honest, I don't wanna hear a recollection of what I just read right after I read it almost word for word. And this is super unfortunate because somebody at our church happened to preach here about a month and change ago about why we should be devoted to scripture 
And this person who preached that day stated that we should not let the difficult, or in this case seemingly boring or maybe not interesting parts of Scripture, stop us from committing ourselves to the study of Scripture because it's the very Word of God, the founder and the finisher of our faith. So I confess that I was convicted. And you know what? That's a reason. This is another reason why we at King's Cross Church, we commit ourselves to expositional preaching preaching chapter by chapter, verse by verse through books of the Bible so that we don't fall into the trap of cherry picking what we like and what we don't like in scripture and just kind of avoiding certain things that may not be as exciting. And through study, especially this section, I'm thankful that we do this. And I'm thankful because a section that I would normally read really quickly past is full of incredible treasure. I just needed to dig a little bit deeper to find God's word does not go out void. Even in these sections, there are beautiful truths and realities to see in the beginning of Acts 11. So today we'll be doing that. We'll be digging to see the truths that God has in his word. And then we will examine these truths. And I hope and pray that this brings us to see more clearly the sovereign grace that God has woven throughout scripture and that is still working in us today. So I believe it'd be helpful for us to go through the narrative in the way that Luke does, in the way that he writes in Acts. I would like us to look at the story from Acts 10 with fresh eyes, and then I want us to go through our text today slowly to see why. Why is Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, repeating so many things verbatim from Acts chapter 10 to chapter 11? So we start in Caesarea with Cornelius the Roman centurion. He is a high-ranking official of Rome, the nation that is occupying Israel. He, He is stated as being a devout man that feared God with all his household. He gave generously to the poor and he prayed consistently. By all accounts, a good man. While he's praying, an angel shows up and tells him that God sees his works and to send for Peter. Who is, staying at Simon, who is staying at Simon the Tanner's house in Joppa at a house by the sea. So he gives him the location, the exact location of where Peter is staying, the owner of the home, everything. So Cornelius sends two servants and a soldier there. Peter, who's in Joppa, he's hungry. He's waiting for food to be made. And he falls into a trance and he sees a vision. God shows him a great sheet of heaven from heaven coming down. And in it are all types of animals, beasts of prey, reptiles and birds. And the voice tells him to kill and eat. And he says, no, I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And the Lord replies, what God has made clean, do not call common. And this vision happens three times. And then the men that Cornelius sent show up to the house that Peter's in. And the Holy Spirit tells Peter to go with him without hesitation, which is also translated making no distinction. And Peter brings six men to go with him to Cornelius' house in Caesarea. So he shows up, Cornelius tries to bow down and worship him, but Peter isn't having it saying, stand up for I too am a man. And then he preaches the gospel to them. And as he is speaking, the Holy Spirit falls upon them and they received saving faith and were baptized. And now we read the first part of our text in Acts 11. And I'm so thankful I put a bookmark here. Acts 11 verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers 
who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So word of this spreads quickly, right? Peter, he had stayed with Cornelius for just a few days, and then he goes to Jerusalem, and the news of what had happened had already reached the believers there. And then we reach the next verse, Acts 11, verse 2, and it makes a unique statement. It says, so Peter went up to Jerusalem. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. And then they'll go into verse 3 with the saying sentence. So up till now, the believers were all Jewish converts to Christianity. So, so at first glance, it's like, yeah, like circumcision, that's part of it. We, we, we get it. But no, Luke is not being redundant in his writing here saying circumcision party. This is widely believed to be a smaller subgroup of extremely jealous, extremely zealous Jewish believers who still strongly held to the Mosaic and ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, especially the food laws that you see in Leviticus 11 which goes into incredible detail of what you can and you can't eat according to God's decree. And this belief was so strict that it wasn't just not being able to touch or eat unclean foods or else you would have to go through a ceremonial cleaning process to be seen as clean, but they really extended the reach of it to the point where you couldn't step foot into a Gentile, which is a non-Jewish person's home, much less spend time and eat with them or be around them because anything they touch would be considered unclean. And this clean and unclean distinction is not like the person smells bad and needs to take a shower. It's in relation to God's holiness as that's what he made clear in the old covenant in the mosaic laws and I and I wish I had more time that I was smarter to really dive into all the specifics of the mosaic law and how the Pharisees and the religious leaders and even this zealous group of believers made them even stricter than was originally intended but I want to set the stage here for, for their accusation Let's read verse 2 into verse 3 again. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Essentially saying you violated God's law. You violated holiness. And Peter begins his answer by explaining what took place. And, and reading through this, I... I honestly like kind of found it funny because the tone of Peter's answer, the way that he goes about answering this, it reminded me of when I would get uh, in trouble at school. I would do something dumb to get somebody to laugh or I would get into it with another kid and the teacher, I would get in trouble and they would call my parents, right? So I knew that when I saw my dad, he knew what I did. He knew that I got in trouble and so I would spend the time between me getting in trouble and me seeing my dad to rehearse, to get ready, to be like, okay, what's going on? Okay, I know my friend Logan was here. He saw what happened. Uh, Tim was here. He saw it. And then when I saw my dad, I'd be like, listen, no, wait, let me explain what happened. All my friends can tell you I did this, this, and this. And Peter's explanation here, it strikes a very similar chord to me. And he also does this. He does something extremely important. He shifts the blame. He shifts the focus from himself to the actual main character of the story, the main character of the whole entire book of Acts, he shifts the focus to God. He shifts the focus to the Holy Spirit. He gives a full account of what happened. We read from verse four on down, but Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying 
And in a trance, I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered by mouth, my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. He makes very clear three times he said, no, I won't touch what's unclean. No. Three times he told God, no. He's letting them know this. And now we get to verse 11. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea and the spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me and we entered the man's house. He tells his criticizers that first off, the Holy Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. And then he says, these six brothers also accompanied me. Essentially, I've got receipts right here. He didn't bring one person. He didn't bring two people. He brought six brothers with him to the centurion's home. Six people who are witnesses to what is taking place. That's not an alibi. So then we get to verse 13. We read of Peter telling what Cornelius told him. Verse 13. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So now he is stating that Cornelius was visited by an angel of the Lord to send for Peter, to declare to them the message of salvation. So do you see, Peter is clearly and explicitly making the case that the main character here, that the culprit, if you will, is the Holy Spirit. Peter has worked in every aspect to show that God is doing this. From Cornelius's perspective, to his vision, to the Holy Spirit speaking to him to go with him, to finally this strong closing statement that we see in verse 15, which goes as follows. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? In church, we spent a month in the month of August focused on Acts 2 in our devoted series here. So it should be familiar what Peter is referencing for those of us who have committed here. Peter preached the gospel to Cornelius and his household. And as he speaks, they come to saving faith and the Holy Spirit falls upon them in the same way that it did in the believers in Acts 2 during Pentecost. And then they were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So 
what can his accusers, his criticizers, say to this? What criticism can hold up to the fact that God did this work from beginning to end? What can this zealous, hyper-strict subgroup of the circumcision say? Our last verse shows us. Verse 18. And when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God. Saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance. That leads to life. So now, some of you here may be asking the same question that I asked in the beginning. Why is this story repeated in such detail one after the other. Why is Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, going through these details again between the telling of it in chapter 10 and Peter's response to the criticism in chapter 11? I feel like he could have done it a lot quicker. And he doesn't really do this in his writings at all through the rest of the book of Acts. Repeat like this in such detail. And I believe there's an important reason for this. The religious and the cultural importance of what happened here the ground-shaking reality that this brings in is worth repeating. And for all of us here, it's, it's generally held that repetition leads to remembrance. What God is doing here to the eyes of first century readers, it's pretty scandalous. Bringing Gentiles into the family of God this is met, and we'll see further along in Acts and also in Paul's writing, it will continue to be met with resistance from those within the church, within the family of faith. There's no mistaking that through this repetition, from first the telling of what happened, then to Peter's answer, that the reader is to be reminded to look at what God is doing, that God is doing this work. God actively worked in an incredible way so that the Gentiles could receive the gospel and come to saving faith and be called beloved. There is little to no room here. If you are of this circumcision party, reading through this to say anything different than those who criticized Peter ended up saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. They cannot be excluded. And I wish... I wish I had more time to go into like why this is so intense, why this would rattle cages, but we're gonna see this more and more as we continue on as a church. And in the New Testament, Paul comes, Paul comes against this again. And Peter, who is a firsthand eyewitness to this happening right here in our text, he will fail in the future in keeping to treating, in to treating the Gentile believers in the same way as Jewish believers. This issue is not an unimportant one. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, in the book of Galatians, he calls this out in an incredible way. Galatians 3, 28 through 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male, female, <coughs> excuse me, male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This repetition uh, is not just for the first century readers, it's for us as well. This repetition should cause us to ask, what is, what is going on here? This is being repeated, so it, it has to have importance. And it does. 
As I said in the beginning of the sermon today, as we dig through this text, there is wonderful treasure that God has for us in his word. And one of them is this, that if you are a Christian, if you are a child of God, because you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, and you've repented of your sins, and you're walking in sanctification and and consistently putting sin to death and seeking God, that is God's active, incredible work in you. The fact that you are a child of God, a Christian, that you've come to saving faith is not isolated to the fact that you may have been born in America, in a middle class or upper class home in the 20th or 21st century. It's not isolated by your race or or your upbringing, whether your parents were Christian or not. It's not isolated to just circumstance. It is because of the sovereign grace and work of God. What we see here in God's word is that the work of God It's the work of God that brings about salvation. And the focus here is to us, to Gentiles. If not for the grace of God, it would have just been a faith for those of Jewish backgrounds coming to salvation. But God, being rich in mercy, gave us a way to be in right relation to him as Gentiles, as people people from all over the world, to come to faith to him. And he said he would do this too. He told the apostles that they will be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We have access into this faith because God made it so. And we see that here in our text. And church, this should bring us to praise God, to worship him, to adore the triune God. And I pray that this not be common to you, I pray that this reality, that we have access to the Father through Jesus Christ, that we are not doomed to the wages of sin and the wrath of God, never, ever, ever become commonplace. And just like, yeah, of course, I'm thankful. Thank you, Jesus. I really want to learn something more. Let's get deeper. This is is paramount. What we see here is the radical inclusivity of the gospel. And I'm not talking about that everyone's going to go to heaven even if they don't follow what the Bible says and submit to it. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this, that God did not make the opportunity of salvation an exclusive process in which you needed to be fully integrated into the working of this systemic religious system of this particular Jewish religion as a prerequisite to coming to faith. He sovereignly made himself available through his son, Jesus, for everyone. The only prerequisite, the only thing that has to happen is for you to believe in Jesus Christ as he shows himself in God's word, to repent of your sins and follow him. And this is a gift. This is a beautiful grace. And we should have lives as Christians marked by thankfulness and gratitude of this reality. So... Ask yourself if you're a Christian, if you're a believer here today, is your life marked by this reality? Can you say that salvation is still sweet and it's beautiful and it's awe-inspiring? Does the knowledge that God has done the work, that he saved you and that his spirit is at work in you, does this bring you to actually praise and worship him? Does this mark your life Or has it become boring and commonplace? Like something we know objectively and we take for granted. 
And if so, I would charge you this morning to run back to that first love, to abide in Christ, to seek after him, and may your heart continue to soften to the truth of his word, his work on the cross, and the Holy Spirit's work in you right now. And this reality that God is, as Hebrew 12 says, the author and the perfecter of our faith, that he's the one working this about. There's a point here that's important to see, and it ties in with Acts chapter 10. Cornelius is shown as a man of prayer, of charity, of good works. He feared God. He gave to the poor. And he was a man known to be in consistent prayer by all around him. But he needed to hear the preaching of the gospel. Upon hearing the truth of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, it was then that he was saved, that the Holy Spirit came upon him and dwelt within him, as he does to all who come to saving faith. This is extremely important. While his works were good, and he gave freely, and he prayed, and he feared God. What brought him to saving faith was the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And I don't know the inner workings of your hearts that are here today or online. You may be, by all visible accounts, faithful and good you may be committed to coming here you may be going to community groups consistently you may be giving of your finances here and to those that are in need you may be a good person by all accounts this is not the same thing as being a born-again christian having a general knowledge that god exists and that you should do good because he says so is not saving faith. The only way to be right with God, to be made alive again, to be saved from the penalty of sin and the wrath of God is to put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, to repent of those sins and to follow him. And this work of salvation is by grace alone. It's not by works. The gift that we have, as we see here in Acts 10 and 11, is offered to all, not just one particular group of people. And it is God that does the work. We see through this historical narrative that God is the one doing this. And he has not stopped. God saves and he changes hearts. And I would implore you that as Jijo did last week so well, that if your heart is stirred by this, if you know that in your heart you've relied on your works and your actions alone, your supposed goodness, but you also know that you have actually not submitted to Christ, that you know the gospel is true, and that you need grace above all else, do not ignore it. Repent of your sin and put your trust and your hope in Jesus Christ. And he is faithful and mighty to save you. We see that here in his word. He is faithful to save all who repent and put their faith in him. And again, to those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, there is another point to hold here. And this is, this is my last one, I promise. But I believe that it's timely. This first instance that we see of salvation coming to the Gentiles to people like us was met right off the bat with resistance from the group of the circumcision. 
Why did you go here? Why did you fraternize with them? You ate with them? You associated with them? And, and, and this resistance, in my lowly opinion, is the start of church division that we see. These people, Cornelius and his household, coming to saving faith are of a different race, a different background, different understandings, different culture, different everything, really. And yet this did not bar them from being brought into the family of God. And yet the criticism came nonetheless. And as I stated, this issue, this, this division pushes and continues on through the New Testament. The issue doesn't go away. And church, I, mean, I believe we face this today. And we face this in my extremely humble opinion, maybe in a stronger way than maybe any of us have ever experienced in our lifetimes. If you didn't know this, the world is preaching. It's preaching loudly, it's preaching boldly, and it's not preaching the gospel. The tension and the anger, the stirring up that we see being announced and preached from the rooftops, from, from our screens, from our, our social networks, it's affecting everybody. Uh, and if you've been paying attention, you know what I'm talking about. You may be listening to this, to this news, to things online, to the preaching that the world offers, and, and it can bring you to look sideways at your Christian brother or sister that may land on a different area of the political spectrum or of the social spectrum than you do. There can be a temptation to think of them with contempt, to shut them out, ridicule them in your heart, to see them as lesser Christians, like they aren't actually your, your brother or sister in Christ. Does this sound familiar to what we just read? This statement, it goes to everybody in the political spectrum. I'm trying to stay balanced here. This also applies to those who've been walking in faith consistently. You may have been blessed to come across a book by John Piper when you were younger or hear John uh, Paul Washer's sermon and, and, and you got reformed early on and then this leads you to look upon those who aren't Calvinist, who don't hold to strict reformed theology and you look at them with a side eye and contempt as lesser Christians. This could go to our more charismatic friends who may see somebody who's not as passionate in their adoration of God, not as active during during praise and worship, not not spending as much time within prayer nights, not believing in spiritual gifts in the exact same way and you may look on them as lesser Christians with a little bit of contempt. You may have grown up in a general evangelical nominal church here in the U.S. and you may look at Christians who really care about doctrine, who really care about theology, who really care about this expositional preaching and you may roll your eyes and think of them as less. It could be age differences, cultural differences, worship style. I mean, I could go on and on, but there is an evident palpable threat of disunity and fragmentation in the church, and even in our church. The pressures are everywhere, and they're loud, and the tension is heavy. And I would charge you that if you fit any of those examples that I just gave, to look at Jesus, look at the Jesus that we see here, just as, just as Peter did when the Gentiles came to saving faith. Look to Jesus who bore your sin and your shame on the cross, whose free gift of grace has been made available to you Gentiles because of God's work from beginning to end. 
Look to Jesus who forgave you of much. Look upon your Savior as shown in Scripture and know that he desires for his people to be of one accord. And I know that this is not always easy. That Sometimes it rarely is. And that's why I think that the Bible gives us helpful language with this. We see in Colossians 3. Bear with each other. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. I think Ephesians 4 is helpful as well. Paul writing, starting from verse 1, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all in all. So Church King's Cross, uh, our text shows us that God's grace has been made available to us lowly Gentiles. Here, 7,000 miles away from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. We have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. It is all by God's grace. Church, I pray that this reality brings us and makes us have lives marked by this. Marked by praise and worship of the God who did this. And I also pray that this brings us um, together in unity in Jesus' name. Would you please pray with me? Father, you are worthy of our praise, our adoration, our song, our service, our, our very lives. You are mighty to save. You deserve all recognition and all glory. And we come before you and we ask, Father, that through the working of your Holy Spirit in us, that you continue to draw us to the remembrance of what you have done. Through your word, Father, through the testimonies of your children, that this reality that we have access by faith, that it mark our lives as believers. And Father, in a world that is preaching from every corner, in a world of pain, of evident injustice in a world of hatred and contempt and, and supposed righteousness. Father, would you grow us in love for one another? Would you have mercy on us on this? That we would love our brothers and sisters as you have loved us, that we would fight to bear with one another for unity as your children in the family of God. Have mercy on us, Father, I pray. In Jesus' name.